from GreenViz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, John Elkington's excellent adventure to Silicon Valley, Kashi and Cliff Bar grow a new business model for organic foods, and a new group hopes to teach universities and cities how to get smarter together. It's not just academic, this week on 350. It's May 20th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm here at GreenBiz headquarters in Oakland, as I said, and uh, talking to GreenBiz senior editor Lauren Hepler. Where in the world are you, Lauren? I'm uh, holding down an impromptu East Coast Bureau this week. <laughs> I'm down in Miami and soon to be Atlanta, actually for a wedding. But at the moment, I'm seeing the torrential downpour in Florida that is quite a change from uh, drought-stricken California. Well, roll up your pant legs because it's going to be underwater before you know it from what I've been hearing. So, I know. Yeah. Not to give away too much, but hopefully we'll have a little more on that on the site in the coming weeks. Oh, okay. Great. Well, uh, I'll look for that. Uh, it's, it's been interesting just to uh, to see more about Florida. In fact, there was a great piece that uh, that uh, Tom Friedman had in the New York Times this week uh, about, on Wednesday uh, about Donald Trump and golf courses in Florida, uh, and that maybe the fact that his golf courses will be underwater in a few years might spur the maverick uh, Republican candidate to uh, actually take on climate change and buck his party, and this uh, this is a way that he could see getting ahead of the issue. So you never know. Yeah, no lie. I drove past that golf course on the way from the airport, and it was indeed seeing some flash flooding. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> okay, well, more on that to come. But for now, let's get into the week in review. So, Joel, we kicked off this week with a story that you actually wrote about a company we don't hear a whole lot about in the realm of sustainability, and that is Hitachi. What was going on there that piqued your interest? So Hitachi, which is a pretty old Japanese company, 106 years to be exact, uh, just launched a new division called Hitachi Insight Group. It's a a unit specifically to bring together their digital and Internet of Things, or IoT, solutions across the company's business units. And, and what was interesting about it is uh, how this uh, uh, you know, old line company, uh, big infrastructure and healthcare and energy transportation systems is sort of reinventing itself around the internet of things and, and linking that very much with a sustainability strategy. 
That's pretty fascinating. We're hearing about this sort of reinvention of core business models across industries with like the automakers or another one we're covering a lot. Uh, but what specifically related to technology? Where is the connection with sustainability for Hitachi? What's really interesting about Hitachi, and yes, you're right, we don't hear about them a lot in sustainability circles, is that they came to environmental sustainability uh, six years ago during their, their centennial. And it was partly a matter of survival. So in 2010, the company, uh, old line company in, in transportation and healthcare and in energy and infrastructure kinds of things, was losing money, $2 billion in that previous fiscal year, 20, in fiscal 2010. And uh, it's, the, new, the then new president said that he vowed to make environmental innovations core to the company's operations for the next 100 years. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And another, you sort of mentioned this term of art that Hitachi has sort of mobilized around, and that's sort of looking at social innovation more broadly. I was curious what that sort of meant in the context of all of this. Yeah, they, they, that's their term, as you said, term of art, that they're talking about social innovation, which addresses the, the kinds of issues that society in general and their customers in particular uh, are facing that where they can be solved by both IT and social infrastructure. So, I mean, this it's, it's energy, it's, it's water, it's food, it's transportation. It's, it's sort of the, the litany of, of things that we talk about in sustainability with the things that we talk about at Verge, for that matter, sort of our tracks there. But, yeah, they're talking about social innovation, which means, and this would kind of be expected for a Japanese company, to be looking at it not just from the, the infrastructural perspective, but also from the societal perspective. Bracing for a planet with 9 billion people. Well, a planet of 9 billion people and a, and a new you know, growing middle class of another 2.5 to 3 billion people. So I talked to two of the key people as part of this new insights group. One is uh, Kev, Kevin Eggleston, who's the general manager of Americas, and the other is Erica Hauver, who's SVP for this uh, new insights group, to talk about uh, what they're doing there, what they, their vision is, and, and what the business opportunity is. In 2010, at the point of our 100-year anniversary, Hitachi's leadership, led by our CEO at the time, had spent about 18 months um, on a on, on a strategic exercise, uh, looking at sort of the the mega trends uh, facing the world. So, the the ones that were really front and center at that point in 2008 and 2009 through this through this exercise were urbanization, you know, obviously density issues, population increases and migration trends, health challenges, particularly related to an aging population, climate change and resource constraints. And they were also looking very hard at that point, you know, it seems ages ago now, but at this wave of technological advances that was, that was coming down the road. Um, and so sort of through that lens, um, Hitachi realized that it was already incredibly familiar as a Japanese company being part of an island nation that Hitachi and Japan had been grappling with many of these trends and issues for 20 or 30 years and had gotten really good at solving for them. Um, so it was with that sort of DNA and that experience um, that the question was being asked in our boardroom about how Hitachi could bring greater human security, greater comfort, greater quality of life, uh, reduced negative environmental impacts in a world of 
greater vulnerability to natural disasters, um, dense, denser living conditions, um, and a world of, of resource scarcity. And from an old company learning some new tricks to a totally new group, our senior writer Barbara Grady took a look at a new alliance of four major companies with a total of 54 hospitals and $4 billion in annual purchasing power that have launched a new online marketplace called the Green Health Exchange. The idea here is to list products from IV tubes to cafeteria food to even waiting room sofas um, and then screen them for specifications uh, regarding the absence of toxicity in their product life cycle. The healthcare industry uh, had their big conference called Clean Med this week, which is, I believe, where that uh, was launched. And it's really interesting to see how the, the healthcare industry hospitals and, and, and the companies that make the products, the Johnson & Johnsons and others, are really stepping up to this. One of the other developments that uh, we haven't reported on but was reported this week along these lines and probably also made at Clean Med, I don't know for sure, is that Kaiser Permanente, based here in Oakland, uh, the largest uh, HMO in, in the I guess, the world, unveiled this week an aggressive environmental plan saying that by 2025, they're going to slash the hospital's water use re- uh, and recycler compost, almost all of its non-hazardous waste, and eliminate or offset uh, its, its greenhouse gas emissions. And so they made, in other words, they stepped up with some big environmental commitments of their own. So, so uh, but back to this uh, exchange, what, what's the exchange going to do? So we're looking at a group that includes Dignity Health, Dartmouth, Hitchcock Healthcare, Gunderson Health System, and Partners Healthcare. So, sort of broad geography here. Yeah, four big, four big companies. Yeah, those are hundreds of billions of dollars of of, uh, of of purchasing power, I imagine. Right, and so they all also have existing sustainability programs and policies in place to eschew toxic substances, as Barbara <clears throat> writes. Um, so they're joining with nonprofits, including Healthcare Without Harm and Practice Green Health which have been sort of agitating on the advocacy side for decades to look much more at the environmental and health implications of materials that are in and around hospitals. Um, so obviously you're looking at a huge array of products. And the, the goal here is to sort of um, lay out a more explicit and collaborative focus um, to, to be better screening which materials are coming in and out of hospitals and make sure you're looking at both the carbon and climate footprint used to produce them in the first place, and then how they sort of get used and disposed of later on. And this is what's needed is you've got so many large procurement entities um, stepping up, but not just individually, but together, uh, aligning their specifications, aligning their purchasing power, uh, and and really going uh, after an industry and to, to eliminate together some of the problematic ingredients and, in, and increase some of the desirable ones. I mean that's a great uh, move on the part of, of this industry. And they, they've been a, this industry has at least some of the organizations like Kaiser and and a couple of others have been at the forefront. But it sounds like a lot more getting on board. Right. And one other thing that I thought was interesting about the Green Health Exchange is that it's technically set up as a B corporation. So hospitals will be joining as members so they can pay a $150,000 membership cost. So it's not cheap. They're having to really sort of put up to to get involved. Um, And then beginning in the fall, hospitals would be able to pay smaller amounts 
to sort of get involved. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they work out the business model. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about being a B Corp, which is a, a IRS designation, uh, means that it, its fiduciary responsibility is to the patients and to the hospital workers and the communities and not necessarily to the shareholders, if to the extent that these are, are private sector or privately held companies, uh, or as opposed to nonprofits, uh, that's a great move. That means they're really going to be focusing on what's really right, right for people and the planets, as well as for the organization's health. One of our stories this week was uh, by our good friend, Shauna Rappaport, Director of Engagement for Verge, about a new organization called Metro Lab Networks uh, that's uh, working in the area of cities and universities. And here to talk about that is Shauna Rappaport. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. So we've worked on City Summit together and done a number of things. There's so many organizations working on cities. I don't have to name them, but, you know, ICLEI and C40 and USDN and and CDP Cities and Local Government Commission and all these others. Why a new organization for cities? What's different about this one? Yeah, well, there is something really unique and across the full landscape, as you said, of organizations that are working to advance, you know, insert adjectives, smart, resilient, sustainable cities. Um, I haven't seen anything quite like this yet, which is really about the relationship and the potential, untapped potential in relationships between cities and specifically the universities in their regions. And what's neat is that the the relationships that they're forming are, are both about leveraging what each respective institution has to offer, but in the context of advancing both research and development and deployment of very specific projects. So, you know, this is about getting the work done. Metro Lab is about bringing cities and, and universities together to look at the what are the technologies, what are the business models, what's needed to make, what does it take? That's exactly right. So the network itself was actually launched in the fall of last year as part of the White House's, I think, $160 million backed Smart Cities Initiative. Uh, the MacArthur Foundation came on to invest an additional million dollars in supporting this network, which is now growing. In fact, I think they just added another 13 members um, in the last few weeks. But, you know, in order to be a member, basically a, either a depart, either, you know, mayor, uh, city manager, or department head with within city government or county, I think there are four or five counties that are a part of the network, have to partner with either a local university or research institution on, as I mentioned, specific projects and, and, and either having to do with sustainability, but all of which had data and information technology and really the data infrastructure, which was, I think, probably one of the most commonly used terms throughout the three days, the importance of having the common platforms underneath all of all of these types of projects to really allow them to succeed. So you were down at their conference in San Diego last week, and uh, but, but it was interesting because I'm sure there was a lot of good energy, but I also imagine that there's a cultural uh, sort of clash here because cities or cities with government, they're bureaucracies, they move at their own pace and not always quickly. And universities are move even less quickly because they're research oriented and, and they're, you know, they work, they, they think about semesters and school years and, and other things. And that must be challenging at times. Did that come up? Absolutely. And in fact, 
a lot. So, so, so much of the event last week was really about both um, elevating the kinds of projects that are happening across the network, letting members learn from one another. And indeed, there were a lot of similarities, but all through this lens of what are the qualities and the best practices around governance, because these are new kinds of partnerships. And it's just like you said, Joel, I mean, and, and a lot of the conversation was how do we meet in the middle, right? How do we speed up our timelines? be a little bit more patient, understand the cultural differences. And I think there was, in fact, anecdotally one story where someone from uh, from a research institution was lamenting how challenging it had been for him to, you know, get a meeting with the folks in the city. And finally, because they hadn't been responsive to his emails. And so finally, he just went to City Hall and knocked on their door. And that was the beginning of what has since become a really fruitful relationship. So sometimes you got to just meet people where they are. You can fight City Hall. So, so What's the goal here? What's what happens if they get this right? Uh, in other words, what's what what is uh, how, how does Metro Lab hope to move the needle? Yes, well, I know that they're probably working hard synthesizing all the outcomes and insights. And part of what was so rich about last week was it really was a working session and you could tell there was a lot of collaborative visioning going on about what is going to be the most valuable, not just to the people, the members in the network, but also as this, you know, data-driven, um, sustainability outcomes-driven smart cities movement is really emerging. Um, and I, I think it's going to be a lot about um, really best elevating best practices around clusters of projects, right? So one of the things that was clear is that across this network of, you know, 35 or so individual discrete city university partnerships, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of people are looking at how do we scale intelligent transportation systems? How do we effectively embed sensors across our city infrastructure to improve city services? How do we leverage data and predictive analytics to solve blight and, and, and you know, homelessness? And so I think this network is really striving to centralize and facilitate a more effective exchange of learnings so that we're not seeing more reinvention of wheels and we're, we're expediting the progress. Yeah, and of course it takes new kinds of leadership and that brings up Martin O'Malley of course who a lot of people who spoke at this event and a lot of people of course know as the uh, now former presidential uh, candidate in Democratic side and but before that he was the governor of of Maryland, before that, the mayor of Baltimore. Uh, what did he have to say? Well, Governor O'Malley just joined, I think, the week before the summit. Uh, it was announced that he joined the network as a senior fellow. So he's going to be doing um, some really important work, visiting all of the member cities, understanding, meeting with their leadership, cultivating buy-in. Um, and he brings an incredible, you know, data-driven, sustainability-oriented background to this work at, at, in government. And he really gave some very important passioned and moving uh, rally cries around um, really articulating this, this new era. Okay, well, let's hear a clip. The old ways of government, ideology, bureaucracy, hierarchy, the tyranny of the way we've always done it, those things are fading away. And a new way of government is emerging. And it's not about excuses, is it? And it's about results. It's not about moving left or right. It's about moving forward. It's about open data, and just as importantly, it's about open minds. It's about getting things done. Del dicho al hecho hay mucho trecho. There is a big distance between the doing 
and the same. This new way of government has some basic characteristics that I've seen anyway, that I believe distinguish it from our very recent past. It is fundamentally uh, entrepreneurial. It is collaborative. It is relentlessly performance measured. And this new and more effective way of governing operates by way of common platforms. Essentially, the internet and geographic information systems, platforms that are open to all, systems that for the first time make this open and visible for all to see, all to measure, all to track, and increasingly for all to be able to affect. The, uh, there was a time, just 10 to 15 years ago, when the best place for uh, the connected and effective leader was to sit high atop a pyramid of command and control. And things got done on the authority of, because I said so. Uh, but today in the age of information, the most important place for an effective leader is to be in the collaborative center of the latest emerging truth. And the information advantage, uh, in this age where information can be mapped and shared by all in an instant, Things get done under the new authority because I can show you it works. There was a time when leaders knew everything before the people, right? Those days are gone. Effective leaders have to put themselves in the center of this emerging truth, knowing they may only see that emerging truth a few seconds before the general public sees it as well. This is uh, a movement from ported information to distributed information, from authority to democracy from exclusive awareness to inclusive awareness, from command and control to empowered collaborations for progress. And this new way of governing, despite uh, uh, how despondent most Americans might feel about our ability as a people to get things done, the truth is this new way of governing uh, has now quietly taken root in cities and towns all across the United States. So I think if anything, one of the real takeaways from the week was that, you know, as much as we focus on the cutting edge technology and the new business models and the policy frameworks that are going to get us there, this all really comes back to people and to leadership. And so we're, we're certainly entering into a new area where era where new forms of leadership are being called on. Us. Yeah, that's across pretty much everything we do. Well, thank you so much, Anna Rappaport, for stopping by. My pleasure, Joel. Over the last few weeks, one of our regular columnists has been keeping me particularly busy in the realm of editing, and that is our contributor John Elkington, known popularly for coining the concept of the triple bottom line. He's also the founder of Volans and sort of an all-around luminary in the world of sustainable business. And Joel, you caught up with John this week. Yeah, well, John is a luminary, not just in sustainable business. I have a particularly close connection with him because uh, it was the, his 1987 bestseller called The Green Consumer Guide, published bestseller in the UK that I created, for which I created the US edition in 1989, 1990, uh, that sort of got me going down this. So so John and, and I go way back, but he's also 
uh, one of my my heroes and mentors here. And uh, and and John, you said, you, Lauren, you said that John had you know coined triple bottom line. He also coined green growth and green consumer, and even the three P people profit planet uh, construct. Apparently, uh, so when John. Uh, is you know, always seems to know where the next thing is, and and I heard from him a few weeks ago that he was coming to California to do a bit of a learning journey along with a couple other colleagues and to visit what turned out to be 25 or 30 different uh, people and organizations in Silicon Valley and some in Los Angeles to just get a sense of, of what's going on and and what's coming up. So when I heard that, I was keen to find out. Um, actually, I, uh, his trip to California and mine, my travel schedule uh, had a 12-hour uh, overlap, so I saw them within minutes, I think, of them getting off the plane from London, had dinner with them, and got a preview of what was going on, and so uh, that was back in April. So uh, just a few days ago, I decided to call him up and say, well, tell me about it. I'm really curious. What did you learn? And um uh, had a piece this week that uh, sort of ran some of that conversation that he had. It was really, really interesting. Before we jump into the clip, who was he meeting with while he was in town? Well, I know he met with XPRIZE Foundation. Uh, he's met with Singularity University, which is this newfangled learning organization in Silicon Valley. Uh, he met with uh, uh, some startups uh, and uh, with people like uh, Gil Friend, who's used to be a longtime sustainability consultant, who's now the the head of sustainable sustainability for the city of Palo Alto, with Janine Benyus, with Paul Hawken, just all kinds of people uh, around, and and just to learn what they were learning and what they were seeing, and and um, uh, you know visited a. a IDO and AirUp, to one's a design, one's an engineering firm. Uh, Indie Bio, which is an incubator for uh, bio biological and uh, industrial biology firms in San Francisco. Institute for the Future, Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. Anyway, I won't. It's just I, I would have. I sort of wished I could have gone. It sounded fascinating. Really, seriously, to be a fly on those walls. Well, um, you know, that's sort of what we got to do by by in in, in absentia by talking to him and. And, you know, he, I think he was fascinated by, uh, maybe we'll hear a clip about this now, about, about how sustainability is being thought about by these people. In fact, one of the questions he asked is, do uh, these innovators in technology in Silicon Valley, how much do they even think about sustainability, let alone things like the United Nations Global Compact or the Sustainable Development Goals or some of the things that have become uh, part and parcel of the conversation that sustainable sustainable business people tend to have. I think we've got to do, which I'd love to do, engage some of the exponential thinkers and, and practitioners and entrepreneurs, uh, you know, many of them clustered in uh, California. So the trip was uh, the beginning of, of, of that process, trying to engage these people, work out who they are, how they think, how they see the disruptive processes playing through the degree to which uh, they ever think about sustainable development and, and, and things like the Sustainable Development Goals or COP21 answer uh, rarely, uh, if, if, if ever, although you know they're playing very much into that um, space. Yeah, and I sometimes wonder whether there isn't a sort of almost retrospective uh, greening or, or whatever of, of some of the 
um, initiatives that these people have launched. I mean, I mean, I look at Elon Musk, and I, I somehow doubt that right the way through his career, he's been focused on uh, sustainable access and mobility. I mean, I think we all make up our, our life stories um, as we go along. But, but you know, one of the things that I think we discussed it at the dinner was that we were looking for was a, a reading of whether some of these sort of, um, if I can ca characterize them that way, sort of exponential people, um, whether they were even remotely interested in dealing with incumbent companies um, and, and with the Global Compact uh, in particular. And I have to say, we came away uh, both surprised and, 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 and delighted to find that um, routinely, pretty much everywhere we went, people were actually really interested in engaging um, uh, on the right terms with the, uh, the world of incumbents because they see these people both as standing in the way and needing to be changed. But equally, they see them as deep-pocketed and able to uh, invest in some of the new stuff that is now beginning uh, to happen. So I have to say that was, that, that was a surprise, but, but actually very uh, encouraging. There is a new economy being um, designed and to some degree uh, rolled out. But one of the things that Paul Hawkins said to me really um, sticks in my memory, which is he said, that, you know, Silicon Valley isn't great at thinking about consequences. I mean, they just do stuff and see what happens. And the question in my mind is, do we just allow what happened with the oil industry and the chemical industry and the plastics industry and so on, the automotive industry, where the consequences at times were a bit overwhelming, uh, stratospheric ozone hole, for example, uh, and just wait for that to happen? Or do we try and engage uh, these exponential entrepreneurs and investors and so on at an early enough stage to influence what they do? And that's where the openness to further conversations uh, was quite uh, encouraging. John definitely always has some fascinating stuff to say and I will say uh, a column that he wrote for us just last week was actually one of our most read stories on the site and that delved into an issue that I think we're going to hear a lot more about and that's how climate change stands to impact the global middle class. I would strongly urge everybody to check it out. We'll link to it in the notes for this week's podcast um, and as always you can tune in on greenbiz.com to the Elkington Report for more from John. So one of the things we did recently that's a little bit different than we normally do is a Twitter chat with uh, Yale Center for Business and the Environment, the Conservation Finance Network, and Greenbiz Group hosted this thing on eco-finance. And here to talk about it is our official, I guess, in-house Twitter chatter. It's senior writer, Barbara Grady. Hey, Barbara. Hi, Joel. So what was this about? What was the goal of the chat? So the title of it was Echo Finance Chat and the purpose really was to get people's ideas on what would make conservation finance go mainstream, you know, what would get traditional investors and banks involved. Can you talk a little about what conservation finance means? Because I'm not sure it's a term of art everyone understands. Sure. So it's basically to get private investment in kind of environmental deals where the money needed is just too big for government and philanthropy to take care of. So Places like the Nature Conservancy have come up with these ideas of how to structure them into financial deals. So it's buying and restoring land, is that or, or coastal areas and uh, often, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, restoring lands, um, restoring wetlands, restoring ocean corridors, so on. And the payback is often um, a combination of environmental benefit that would satisfy, say, impact investors, and often a financial return. An example would be the Athelia Ecosphere Fund by Ecosphere Capital Partners. It's investing debt and equity capital into sustainable land use activities. And then the return on investment is not only restored land and habitats, but also environmental assets with, envir with like monetary value, such as carbon credits that can be used in cap and trade practice and uh, certified commodities. So let us in on this Twitter chat a little bit, Mike. What, who was there? What kinds of people were there? And what were they talking about? Yeah, so we had about 39 people chime in during the hour. And they ranged from investors from Credit Suisse and Encourage Capital and some other private firms, and then a bunch of NGO people from uh, we had Environmental Defense Fund, several individuals. And their interests were very similar to our questions. But the bottom line thing that people wanted to know was how to structure these deals so that there's an actual um, you know, return on investment that potential investors can see from the outset, can, can kind of analyze and do a bit of due diligence about, and that there would be metrics. And was there any uh, prevailing opinion or big takeaway from this? I'd say the prevailing opinion was that environmentalists and NGOs need to talk to investment people so that they're talking the same language. Several people said that. A lot of the responses were provided by a gentleman by the name of John Tobin, who wrote a report for Credit Suisse about conservation finance. And he responded to many of these questions as kind of the resident expert. And that was kind of the refrain that kept coming back. These two sides need to talk the same language. And his comments on that were like seconded by a a lot of other people. Great. Well, you posted a storified version of this uh, just the other day, this week, uh, on greenvis.com called Can Ecofinance Go Mainstream? Uh, has uh, a lot of the John Tobin answers and responses in some of the chatters. So uh, if, if you're an ecofinance geek, it's a good place to take a look. So from uh, eco-finance to organic food, let's talk about your story, uh, Lauren, about Cliff Bar and Kashi and how they're trying to upend the food chain for organic food. What's going on there? Yeah, this story sort of bubbled up uh, unexpectedly. I took a jaunt a couple weeks back over to our friends at Cliff Bar. They're just located in Emeryville on the east side of the San Francisco Bay. Um, so as I was walking around their very fancy postmodern industrial headquarters with 
mountain bikes hanging from the ceilings and the free personal trainers for all the employees running around. Love it. Um, this one topic kept consistently coming up and that was the economics that farmers are dealing with. And in particular, it's this three year lag time that's required by the US Department of Agriculture where it takes three years for the soil to totally recover from conventional farming methods, particularly around the pesticides that are typically used. So you have to let the land lie there traditionally for three years if you want to transition from conventional food to organic food. So one way Cliff has been trying to get around that is inking long-term purchase agreements. So they've done this with a fig producer in California, for example, where they agreed up front ahead of this three-year transition, hey, if you go ahead and make this investment, we will buy the next seven years of your yield. So sort of a long-term stability play. So by uh, doing that, it allows companies to do the financial planning that will get them at, at least through those three years of, of where they, their, their crops have to lie fallow, where their land has to, uh, they can't farm it at all in order to get the organic certification. That's pretty smart. Right. And then what also struck me as I was thinking about this topic already was uh, Kashi reached out. They're actually owned by Kellogg now. But I talked to Nicole Nestojko. Hopefully I'm not butchering that. She was the senior director of supply chain and sustainability for Kashi. And she told me a little bit more about how the new label was a certified transitional label. We wanted to raise the awareness of, of the barriers that farmers face when they're converting to organic. We've experienced that firsthand. Um, at, you know, our friends at Cliff have as well. Um, I've been with Kashi for 16 years. You know, we launched our first organic cereal in 2002, and um, I think it was the first organic cereal in market, and, and now there are like a thousand. So, you know, our vision is that we can create something here with transitional that really helps grow organic farmland beyond 1%. You know, we regularly visit farms, and two years ago, we were visiting um, an organic farm, and that farmer told us, um, as a consumer, I would like a way to support farmers in transition. And she said, actually, I would be more likely to support farms that were in transition than an organic farm. And that's when the light bulb went off for us, and we, we really realized we could make an, an impact from seed to spoon. Um, and we knew we had to create something that would work for other brands. So, of course, you know, within the supply chain, there are a lot of ways to tackle a supply shortage, you know, from vertical integration to um, buying farmland specifically for your brand. But we wanted to create something that was open source and that could really help, you know, drive scale and, and really address, address the problem. Farmers face barriers to, con to converting around, you know, capital investment, new business plans and loans. Um, no no premium market for the crop. So while they're in this three-year period, they're investing, they're taking a lot of risk, um, and they're not reaping any reward. So it can just be, you know, a, a barrier to even doing it in the first place. But consumers continue to demand more organic products. Um, and so, you know, that's where we really initiated an open source protocol to try to reward farmers, create a market, and connect it to the consumer with this certified transitional protocol. So we're super excited about our first product launching um, in a few weeks called um, Dark Cocoa Karma Shredded Wheat Biscuits. Really super delicious. Um, so we're good. excited about that first product. It's, it's very tasty. We're happy to send you some samples. We've got a bunch around the office. But So for example, for this specific product, we are working with 
with two specific farmers who are in transition. Um, and so this protocol, basically, um, they're following organic practices during this three-year transition, and then they're getting that certified through QAI, who's, the, you may know them, the leading USDA accredited certifying body. They're, they've been mm -hmm. a partner. So the farmers, you know, get certified by QAI that their crop is certified transitional, and then they're able to sell it um, as transitional, which, you know, is at a premium to conventional. So it's the, the protocol that recognizes and rewards farmers that are following the same processes and practices as USDA certified organic, but they're not there yet. You know, we call them organics in training, you know, so um, it, it's really recognizing that and rewarding that effort. Kashi mentioned that their parent company, Kellogg, is watching very closely how the, this new label uh, goes. And the other thing she said was that the goal here was really to develop uh, she called it an open source tool. But the idea is that uh, the transitional label isn't tied to only Kashi or to only one company. It's actually owned and operated by a third party group, Quality Assurance International, which is the leading organic certification company authorized by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, so the goal is that other companies, be them a smaller, more boutique company like Kashi or Cliff Bar or a much bigger conglomerate, could go to QAI and say, hey, we also want to use this label as we transition more, more acreage over to organic. So in terms of what's coming up at GreenBiz, well, I think it's just the word is SEM, right? You know SEM means, Lauren? Tell me about it, Joel. <laughs> you know what it means. You're just <laughs> egging me on. It's the SEM is, C-E-M is the Clean Energy Ministerial. Now, this is the SEM 7, the seventh year they're doing this. Uh, the first one was in the United States, and then it's hopscotched around the world. Uh, but this seventh annual one is going to be June 1st and 2nd in our very own San Francisco, and it's going to be a little bit like COP Paris uh, Redux here. There's going to be just a bunch of different events and hundreds and hundreds of, of people, lots of big names in town uh, and lots of adventures. And we're, you and me and Green Biz are going to be a big part of this. Yeah, I'm chomping at the bit. It sounds like there's going to be lots of really cool interview opportunities, hopefully some of which we can uh, bring back to our podcast audience. But what is the event and what sort of is the significance in the grand scheme of things? So the Clean Energy Ministerial, SEM, is uh, the energy ministers or secretary of energy in the U.S., uh, from a, a number of different companies, uh, 23 companies and the European Commission uh, that uh, come together, have been coming together every year to talk about how will they uh, implement and enact the clean energy economy um, and uh, sort of under the radar. But this this is SEM7, and it's the first one, of course, since the Paris Agreement uh, that last December. Um, and so there's going to be uh, the ministers come together on the on uh, June 1st in a private meeting with uh, a number of uh, the sort of the big groups, International Energy Agency and IRENA and, and Sustainable Energy for All. They'll be meeting together. And then on uh, and while they're doing that, there's going to be a whole bunch of side events that uh, we're going to be at. I know I'll be moderating at a couple events and we'll be posting more about that uh, maybe maybe next week. 
And then on June 2nd, there's an all-day event uh, that is a, it's a, called a public-private day of action that uh, brings together uh, a uh, sort of a interesting group of, of speakers that range from our Governor Jerry Brown to Secretary of Energy Moniz and a number of different corporate and government officials uh, speaking. Um, some of it's still coming together, but um, I think the key takeaway is that we Green Biz will be live streaming that, and and Lauren, you and I, as you know, will be will be reporting from there and doing some uh, some interviews during the networking breaks for the live stream audience, uh, so that uh, they aren't just staring at a room full of people milling about drinking coffee and eating pastry. Uh, but it should be a really really interesting couple of days. Uh, everyone who's anybody in energy is going to be here in San Francisco. Always interesting to get the mishmash of private sector, public sector, uh, NGOs all together. I know that was one of sort of my highlights from the Paris Climate Talks. Uh, so can't wait to get started in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And, then, and, and while all that's going on, by the way, there's going to be a massive tent built in Union Square in the middle of downtown San Francisco where there's going to be a SEM Startup and Solutions Showcase where they're going to be expecting 100 companies and organizations to be you know, uh, exhibiting their wares. And I think it's going to be fun. We'll, we'll do some some video from there. We'll, be, we'll actually run some of that during the networking breaks at uh, at the uh, June 2nd event. And 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 then, of course, uh, you and I will actually be uh, uh, recording that week's podcast direct from SEM. And we'll have some of those guests and recordings of uh, that we can bring to the Green Biz 350 audience. So lots of fun coming up on Green Biz 350. Yes, and as always, you can get more information about SEM7 and all the other events we have coming up. Um, Verge Hawaii also at the end of June, for those of you looking for a, a summer getaway. Um, you can get that by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page. And we'll post all that, as we always do, on greenbiz.com slash 350. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As we just said, you can find the links to organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks to our podcast director every week. It's Surreal Melconian. And we love when you get your feedback, your ideas, and your comments. Send those to 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here next week. For all of us at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. Yeah.